0: As a company grows, I think you need to kind of fire yourself from those different responsibilities and, and okay. scale yourself into a different role where you're not all about doing, you're more about like enabling. And what I observed there was that Zane just somehow naturally really scaled really really fast for him himself into Mm. this role of being a ceo like a professional ceo like he just like naturally took on that and and the transition was very natural for him whereas for me i was kind of just still stuck in the weeds
1: never do business with your friends never build a startup without a technical founder never go to market without a minimum viable product never go to a vc without a well-thought-out pitch deck and never ever hire people from Craigslist. From breaking all these rules and more, my next guest, serial entrepreneur and now investor Jack Smith somehow turned a terrible idea into a 780 million exit. Originally from England, Jack moved to San Francisco in 2011 as part of an audacious LinkedIn hack to enter the incubator angel pad. Jack co-founded mobile ad startup Vungle, a Google Ventures-funded startup with millions of revenue which was eventually acquired for $780 million by Blackstone. Post-Vungle, Jack started advising startups like Survivors, RCI, and OnFleet, many of these worth over $100 million with exits to back, all before the age of 30. Today, we unpack scaling a startup, the hard lessons along the way from co-founder breakups to investor scandals, the good, bad, and ugly. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top US and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen. Now let's get started. Today we have a truly tremendous treat with my longtime friend Jack Smith. Jack, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing good. Looks like you did a lot of research in the uh, intro clip. There's stuff I hadn't remembered. There.
1: Thanks for uh, the interesting, fascinating journey. That, that is uh, your life. And today I'm excited to really unpack that to where you are. So let's begin from the very beginning, Jack, for the benefit of our uh, listeners who are tuning in here from across the globe, you know, really excited to hear at the end of the day, the billion dollar moves that you've taken personally. And and I know, you know, we, we joke about how you started from a dingy office where you could fit like two to three people. But uh, really your entrepreneurship gene, I want to call it, or, or spirit started a long time ago. Tell us where it began and how you got into technology, really.
0: Yeah, I think I was starting, well, I started to try and focus on making my own money when I was like 13, just because otherwise I just had been getting an allowance from my parents and they were telling me to do chores and stuff. And I was like, I'd rather just be independent, like financially Mm -hmm. independent. And at 13, any money you make is is good money. Right. So even if I was working for like 50 cents an hour, at least that was money I was making myself. Like I didn't want to just be given money. And then I had started a business and actually it was doing, um, Reasonably well, like maybe like $20,000 a year in revenue or something. And I was weighing up n- actually whether I should go to university or not. And my parents, which I think was good advice, they just said, Hey, look, if you don't go to university at all, then you'll never know what it's like. But mm. why don't you just go? And then if you don't like it, you can just drop out, but at least you've seen what it's like, like you're not really going to get the same experience if you go to university at age 30 or something for the first time. Mm. And so then joined university. And then up until that point, I'd felt quite isolated as an entrepreneur. I kind of saw these people in um, Silicon Valley, like Mark Zuckerberg and stuff, and then felt that like Stanford and all these places have more of a community around entrepreneurship. And I didn't really feel that as much in London. So I felt kind of quite isolated. Mm -hmm. But then one bit that did change me was where I met you, was that this King's College London had this business club. So I emailed (laughs) my university and I was like, Hey, I'm doing a startup. Is there any resources to Help people that want to do startups here, you know, like free office space or Stanford has its own like VC fund. Like, do I mean, this stuff. And then they were just like, only if you're doing a medical business or something. Hmm. But then they were like, however, there is this guy that we think could be interesting for you to speak with called Zane. And then he started this business club. And so I met Zane. And then it was one of the first times sitting down to chat with him that I'd met someone who was very aligned with me in terms of his goals and aspirations and what was driving him about wanting to just do a business and then joining the business club then mm. kind of met other people that were also passionate about entrepreneurship and business and it was nice having some other people to not feel totally isolated a bit
1: you talked about your business just now you know starting through high school trying to get more than an allowance to, to get some freedom from from your parents there and that was Media Roots. And yeah. that evolved eventually into Vungle, which yeah. you then worked with Zane about. So, so tell us a little bit about how did that transition happen?
0: So the business that I'd started before called Media Roots was doing educational video content. So how to use apps that are on your computer. So how to use Photoshop, how to use Microsoft Excel, and things like this. And then at some point, actually, I from what I can remember, I actually was just reading like Gartner reports Mm. and see. And so this was in, um, 2010 and the iPhone app store, people don't remember, but actually the iPhone came out and it didn't have an app store. It didn't have any, any apps. It was just a phone, your music and the internet. And in about one, I believe like maybe 18 months, two years after the iPhone first launched, they launched this app store. And so me in 2010, I think that that was maybe, I think like a year after the app store was launched or so. And I read this Gartner report that mobile apps is already a huge industry, but we Mm. think it's just going to blow up and be a massive, massive industry. And so I was like, Hey, that's kind of interesting, this new, entirely new ecosystem. And I can see it just seemed interesting, mobile apps. And so we just started experimenting like, hey, we've we've got this company where we're doing videos for desktop applications. However, that's a very competitive market. No one's mm-hmm. really doing that for phone applications and games and stuff though. So it experimented around, again, this was early in the iPhone times. So actually our first kind of hack was had to like jailbreak an iPhone and piece together all this kind oh of equipment. Goodness. Yeah. It was kind of a wacky idea. Zane was just like, Hey, look, we're just going to give this idea like 48 hours. You've got like 48 <laughs> hours to do this. Like, cause it was right. nothing to do with our normal business. So he's like, all right, look, mm. you, you can have 48 hours of experiment. If nothing happens, then you've just got to drop it because this is kind of a crazy idea. And then, so basically, we got an intern, and his first day, we sent him to go to the Apple store. We just bought a load of equipment because the Apple store you're allowed to return anything within like thirty days. So we just Mm -hmm. bought like iPads and all this equipment, and then just tested around and actually got this first breakthrough where we managed to be able to record the screen of the iPhone. Now now that's not a deal, obviously. You can just record it in the software. At the time, it was not possible to record iPhone videos. And then, so we had this, and then we had then kind of pivoted Media Roots to this business idea. But the exact idea we had was Mm -hmm. very terrible and would never have worked. It was basically an app store where every app would have a video instead of a Mm. screenshot. Okay. Um, However, that put us in the right market, at least. The mobile app market was the right market to be in. And when we subsequently joined this incubator school for startups um, called AngelPad, they Mm. helped us transition the idea into an actually viable idea.
1: First of all, wanted to convert a version of uh, a mobile tutorial. But back then, I mean, I, I really think a lot of us forget how much the iPhone and just technology has advanced. But to your point, right, screen recording, which is something that we use almost every other day now, many of us, but it's something that, you know, wasn't, wasn't the norm then. So you essentially had a couple of cables and hacked it in a way that you were able to use sort of the deep back in the day, DVD camcorder type uh, yeah, exactly. technology yeah. to record. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And then how did you then from that was, I want to say 2011, was that right?
0: Yeah, um, And then you decided to go
1: to San Francisco.
0: Yeah. So that was like the end of 2010, very Mm -hmm. start of 2011. Had not really thought about San Francisco. I actually didn't really know about Silicon Valley that much, to be Mm. totally honest. I do not really know. I mean, I read TechCrunch and stuff, but I didn't really know about the whole ecosystem. Was just reading TechCrunch one day. So at this point, this was kind of maybe five or six months into pivoting to Vungle. I was reading TechCrunch and saw this article that, hey, there's this incubator in san francisco and they're giving every company that joins um 100 or one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. and then there's one spot left for somebody reading this article and then i know we've got limited time but like basically that then we were like oh wow that's a cool opportunity because actually when we saw that we'd got accepted to another incubator at that time we we were basically Mm -hmm. just applying to everything trying to get everything we applied to that one in Europe, I can't remember. There's someone in Europe, they rejected us. And then, but the uh, the only one we got accepted to was in Newcastle. Hmm. And then they weren't going to give us any money or any, I think it was maybe $10,000 or something. But then right. we were kind of like, this Angel Pub one seems so much better because we're like, they're giving me $120,000. It's in right. Silicon Valley. And then contrasting, I've been to Newcastle once, and then it was just raining the entire time. And we're like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> maybe maybe it wasn't even Newcastle. It might be like Stoke or something." Yeah, and we're like, "What billion dollar company?"
1: Totally. In- so so Silicon Valley was the choice, uh, and I think yeah. you definitely made the right choice there. But back up a little bit. So you went to AngelPad, which is for listeners tuning in, as they quote somewhat the equivalent. They might you know pish pash me a little bit, but you know YC type incubator, right? But you. Yeah didn't actually have a great idea and you looked around you and it seemed like everyone else had a better idea. What what, what then transitioned? What happened? But you ended up raising the most money among the cohort, right? How did this all come to be?
0: So actually I think our biggest learning from the incubator, at least mine, I've subsequently read a book and then this is my most recommended book. It's called Mm. The Mom Test. M-O-M test. And it kind of codifies what I think my biggest takeaway was. And so when we went to this incubator, it's 12 weeks long. And so we had this pressure that, okay, we need to come up with an idea and find a co-founder and stuff. And one of, they basically set you exercises each week, each week you go around the room and say, what progress did you make? And one week the exercise was, Hey, I want you to go and speak to like 20 of your prospective customers, So Mm -hmm. for us, that was app developers. And the guy said, but don't try and pitch them on your idea. Like don't try and sell them your idea or or convince them of anything. Just have a conversation and just ask Mm -hmm. them, okay, you're an app developer. What are your biggest challenges in being an app developer?
1: Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue we love the sound of those things visit hubspot.com/service to learn more
0: and what we heard from that was hey We are experienced at making, we're we're engineers. We know how to build an app, but we don't know how to get anyone to download our app. We don't, we don't know how to get users. And so Mm -hmm. then we had, all right, that is a concrete problem in our market. And then basically, because we had this limited time, we basically tried out, I I would think, at least six different business ideas, kind of one per day, actually. We would make like a fake landing page website, making it seem like our idea already existed. And then we kind of tried to sell it to people. So there was this app developer conference where we actually, again, just like random hustling hacks, we managed to get a, a booth. At this conference for free and the, the other people at the conference were like salesforce and paypal and stuff so these really big places and us we just printed our logo on a piece of paper we only had a black and white printer so it was like black and white printout very ghetto but there we tried selling the idea and so our previous idea was like hey we can get you promotions on blogs and app review sites and stuff and people and we were like it's normally going to cost like two hundred dollars because we're just launching we'll give it to you for twenty dollars and all these people walking past were like whoa this is awesome yeah sure i'll sign up as soon as i get home We got zero sales, Like people Mm. were just telling us this great idea because no one's going to tell you your idea is shit. Like, they're just like, oh yeah, it's a great idea, but no one actually wanted it. And then one day we got this kind of spark of inspiration that we were going into a meeting with the guy at AngelPad. And then we had just downloaded an app on our phone about a sound recorder. And so we were like, Hey, is it okay if we just record the meeting to take notes or whatever? And so open the app to start recording. And I started to blaring out some advertisement for pepsi or something like on Mm. autoplay full volume and we were like well one that's really annoying but two what if instead of advertising pepsi like what if that video was just promoting another game or another app and then we took that idea and and took it to the app developers and then we tried six ideas we knew this was the right idea because when we told people this idea they were like okay i want to be your first customer like assume, li- as soon as this is ready, you have to tell me, put me down for like $5,000 or $10,000. Like we want to be first in line to spend money on this. And so people were like literally throwing money at us. And so that right. was when we knew that, okay, this is the idea then.
1: So you had your customer lineup. You had a great idea that now you want to double down on. Uh, what was next? How did you then bridge the gap and then get to the 120K?
0: The demo day gave massive amounts of pressure. So basically we were like, okay, if we don't raise funding by this demo day, we're going to have to go back to England and look like idiots. Because we told everyone in England, like, hey, you never believed in us. We just got into, we're moving to America now. Like we basically thought we'd made it just by getting in. We also realized that we probably need to get some funding before demo day. And so basically the first step that we did is I kind of researched on LinkedIn and found this other guy kind of who had founded a company in our space, like mobile advertising space and already sold it. And so I just mm. reached out to him for advice. I was like, Hey, you've done something similar. would love to just see what you think about what we're doing. And it just turned to you that his office was around the corner from us. Like that was the benefit of Silicon Valley at the time. Now stuff is more spread out, but they're like, somebody would literally be oh, I, I'm next door to you. And so you would run right. into all these so, amazing... So this business.
1: was Lyndon. Yes, Lyndon, Lee right? Lee
0: Lyndon. Yeah. Lee Lyndon, who's now a uh, like, very successful investor. We were able to say like, hey, we've got these like really experienced investors and we've got this mm-hmm. traction. And then this is our CTO, who's like from Intuit and stuff. So we kind of ticked off the stuff we felt we needed to buy that demo day. And that created this time pressure and urgency.
1: Fantastic. So you did this, what, and I want to think, uh, you know, demo day and, and just a time frame, what, 12 weeks or something like that? Yeah,
0: 12 weeks, uh, yeah. In, to
1: get uh, everything to together, up. which is yeah. extremely intense. Uh, yeah. But then you have this check, uh, you're ready to go, you've got a CTO that's, you know, going to help you get to the next stage. Because the other fact that I also want to talk about is the fact that both you and Zane are actually non-technical founders. So it that was an important
0: yeah, it was important. I mean, I went to university for computer science, but I didn't like how it was taught, and and so right. after like two weeks, I switched course. So uh, I kind of would just describe myself as like a crappy engineer. Like, <laughs> um, if you if you if I meet someone who's not technical, they could be like, "Oh, he's technical." Yeah. If I meet an engineer, they would be like, "This guy doesn't know what he's talking about."
1: Okay. So you're, you're technical, but not technical enough, but yeah. still, you know, in, in, I guess in the classic terms, a uh, non-technical founder, yeah. you're not the one that's, you might yeah. be the guy who's leading product and, and marketing, but not necessarily the guy in engineering. Yeah. Is that a fair that. statement? Right. right. Yeah. So, so then now as you go into the next stage, tell us what happens. How did you get to from, you know, this really launching pad of, angel pad, pun intended, then going into seed and later stages and and scaling the company to even internationally, how did that all um, happen? And, And what was your role in that?
0: Well, well, one bit it was actually the company was international from day one because we mm. were in London and then had moved to America. We kept the small office in London with three um, people, like two interns and one um, person who was kind of part time. So it was kind of international from day one, actually. But right. then Angelpad, you have this demo day where you're pitching to other investors and we were initially trying to raise $500,000 because, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't know how much we're going to raise and, and whatnot. But then going into the demo day, We managed to, we had Lee Linden and then we also managed through other scrappiness to get Google ventures to put in a hundred thousand dollars. And so that meant that we were able to go into the demo day, but maybe we had one or two other investors as well, but it was kind of basically Lee Linden and Google ventures, but basically it meant we went into the demo day in a much stronger position because we could say like, Hey, we're raising 500,000 and we already have half of it raised and, and being led by like top invest, uh, Google Ventures said like, don't mention their name for some reason, but we were basically like, Oh, like a top tier investor is leading it. And now we're just looking to fill out the remaining 250. And then when you're in that position where you're not really begging for money, you're kind of just like, Hey, we already have money. Power dynamic. Yeah. Switch up the power dynamic. So at that point, then obviously everyone wanted to invest. And um, then that's Kind of why the round became two million instead of just five hundred thousand, and once we raised the two million, because it was more than we expected, we'd initially previously planned to kind of build a small product and try and make revenue very fast, but perhaps immediately after. But because we raised the bigger amount of money, we were more just like, hey, actually, let's just like pause it. Let's instead of trying to make money right away, we now have a buffer. So instead, let's actually build out our bigger vision of what we would like our product to be and then launch it. And that took a little bit longer than we expected, but basically that took about six months. So basically we raised the money and then we were just building for six months, not really selling or anything. And so it definitely has product market fit today. like It's really solving problem. But he told me that at the time, no one wanted the product. He Hmm. would have to really do brute force sales. So like cold emailing and then like following up with phone calls and more phone calls. And so really at the start, kind of the analogy that makes sense to me now, as I um, discussed with him learning about the early days was that at the start, we kind of had to be pushing a boulder up a cliff. And then at some point it reached the top of the cliff and was able to just roll down by itself with momentum
1: this analogy of pushing a boulder up a hill, what kept you going at that time? And how would you, I mean, you know, we're founders tuning in here. How do you know you're on the right path? Like you're pushing it the right way. And at some point it is a tipping point. What was that for you?
0: I'm not sure, but I think that we had, you know, we'd thought we tried out different business ideas and seen the promise of this business idea in order to decide to pursue it. And so we, Mm. that was our indication of product market fit. And then so once we'd raised the money, I think that we just felt we had to go all in on this idea and and make it work. And I think that we would have basically had to have got to a point where we weren't seeing any signs of progress and basically almost ran out of money for us to have considered like trying to change that because otherwise we didn't necessarily have any other ideas. We felt that, this idea, we felt it was a good idea after proving out initially the customer discussions. So we just felt that we we did realize as well that Vungle is a two-sided marketplace and many businesses are, and you have these challenges. So if it's, it doesn't matter what it is for Vungle, we needed to get people showing ads who want Mm -hmm. to make money and we needed advertisers to want to spend money. And that's right. the same. Let's say you're launching a dating app. Obviously, this is stereotyping, but you would probably want to have be balancing women and um, men if, if it's just. Yeah. A
1: so, buyer and seller mainstream. essentially is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: mm-hmm. so, I think we just kind of saw that, hey, look, it's challenging getting this going a bit at the start, but this is a two sided marketplace. And once we get some for us, it was kind of apps to show the ads. Then I think we'll be able to get advertisers because people had wanted to give us money early on anyway. It was just getting those app publishers, as we call them fungal as a typical B2B business and an advertising model. Really the only focus is revenue. Like we couldn't have made an argument that like, hey, we're doing all this other stuff and then we'll make revenue later. That wouldn't really have made much sense. I don't think we were assessing the viability of the business from revenue metrics. We weren't like, oh, Mm -hmm. if we hit this goal, it's a good business. If we don't, it's not. We, We basically were just, yeah, we didn't really have goals like that. We were just like, hey, we just need to make this a success and just work as hard as we can to make it a success. I mean, Gartner and stuff were saying about, what we kind of knew that the mobile app industry was really huge. There was lots of money in it. And so any money that we were making was a tiny drop in the ocean in that context. I, I think, yeah, we weren't really assessing from goal perspective. We were just like, we need to make this work.
1: Hmm, interesting. And, you know, fast forward, you decide at some point that you wanted to leave the business. I think this was just after Series B, was that right? Tell us um, about what- Before
0: what... the Series B. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit before at so, the series B. Yeah. So
1: what happened there and why did you leave? I
0: mean, it's hard to say like a simple one reason. I think there were different reasons adding up. But We had just started the business, just me and my friend Zane. And at the start, when there's just two of you, you're kind of doing everything. So for me, for example, that was more maybe the accounting doing product and marketing for Zane. He took on a bit more of the selling for some degree, like investor relations and stuff like that. And then Mm. as a company grows, I think you need to kind of fire yourself from those different responsibilities and and scale yourself into a different role where you're not all about doing, you're more about like enabling. And what I observed there was that Zane just somehow naturally really scaled really, really fast for him himself into mm. this role of being a CEO, like a professional CEO. Like he just like naturally took on that and, and right. the transition was very natural for him. Whereas for me, I was kind of just still stuck in the weeds and I think mm. actually was slowing the business down a lot because I was a bottleneck that I hadn't been successful in firing myself. So even if it was like a tiny... I think we also had a challenge growing our mindset from a a scarcity mindset to a growth mindset. We were used to having no money. We we wouldn't spend any money. But then raising $2 you need to transition that. But still, even when I was there towards the end, I was signing like $20 checks and stuff. (laughs) And that's not conducive to scaling a business. I think I was kind of slowing it down. So that was one reason that I didn't scale my business. Bit as much because I was stuck in the business mm-hmm. too much and my co-founder seemed to scale a lot better. And the other bit was quite burnout as well. That I, I basically had got an apartment opposite our office. So it right. was literally across the street. And so basically I didn't really have any friends in San Francisco either. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I basically was just in the office seven days a week, all of the time. And I, I was there till after midnight each day, like much longer than everyone else left because I just didn't really have a life outside of it. Yeah. And so that also does catch up on you where if you don't have any separation, that if you just only work, then kind of just, you you are going to burn out at some point because yeah. I just didn't have a life and I had yeah. to take a holiday or anything. So I think with hindsight, if I were to be giving myself in that position advice again, what I would have said is that I think that what I should have done is taken at least two weeks off, Mm -hmm. maybe one week, just totally detached. Don't check emails or anything, just read books or just totally detached, go to some other country or something. And then on another aspect, I could have met other entrepreneurs who had been in positions like me but now their business is much bigger and successful and ask them because I couldn't really see Zane was asking me like, what do you want your role to be as the company mm. scales? And I couldn't really see what spe- I'm I used to being more a generalist, like taking on loads mm. of tasks. I couldn't really see what specifically defined role would be best for me. And I think that what I should have done is taken a step out of the business. like taking a step back, uh, take a week or two to meet other people, people and ask them like, Hey, as your business scaled, how did you divide up the responsibilities and stuff? But I didn't do that, but I think that would have been a good idea.
1: So if you did, I mean, now, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but what would you think your specific role ideally would have been in this business? And what's your specialty now in, in, based on what you've done so far?
0: I mean, it's hard to pinpoint exactly. I think even beyond just, uh, limiting skill set, I, I think that I also should have adjusted. I needed to adjust my m- mindset from, you know, micromanaging every element of the business to enabling other people more and trusting them more because otherwise I was just kind of, uh, trying to touch a lot of the stuff and your culture is very important. And so if something was going on that I felt didn't match the kind of culture we were trying to build for the business, then I yeah. was like on top of it, but then you waste your time. Like I would now with hindsight, see it as a waste, like trying to create a cool office environment or, or something like it, it's a balance because some of the stuff you could call it a time waste, but then right. has continued in the business today, like some small stuff. So every person that joined the business. We had a Polaroid camera and took a photo of them and added it to a wall. And that creates an environment where Culture. Yeah. Culture. It's it's not just a job. So Vungle Many of the people now are still like really, really good friends that were there early on. Um the, the first 20 to 30 people, super close. Some of them have got married. Some of them are like still dating yeah. and then they go to each other's weddings and stuff and really close. And we did cr- successfully create that environment. But some of it, some of the initiatives could have been like too much time wasting. Like, Understood. Uh, yeah. You could have focused on, on bigger stuff. Yeah. yeah, like I was trying to hang plants upside down from the ceiling. <laughs> um, and oh, then, Jack. Like, all right, that's cool, but is that a good use of your time? Exactly. I think because I didn't have the separation between work and play, as I said, because mm. it was not clearly defined, I was just trying to have fun in the business because I didn't have a social life. So.
1: Yeah, and many founders go through that, where your identity is built upon your startup and it's hard to have that sort of separation. So you touch upon a few things. One is friendship. So you and Zane go into business as friends and still today remain as friends, but it would be remiss for me not to have touched upon the scandal that unfortunately landed on TechCrunch and a lot of the front pages. In the face of public scrutiny and pressure, it felt like the easiest way for the board, for the management was to get Zane out. And you as a friend and the fact that both of you started this, How did you handle that time as what I can only imagine to be a difficult one? Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia, CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu jitsu Living entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a Walt ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know, that's our jam. Listen to it, talking too loud wherever you get your podcast.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I just was then just trying to support Zane because I kind of also observed that if you get accused of something, even though he got acquitted of all of the stuff later, yeah. if you just get accused of something, then many of the people that are in your network, like not actually your friends, they're just acquaintances in your business network. They'll just mm. ditch you as soon as you get, if, if, if you have any negative PR, it's not worth yeah. it. You know, if, if they're not your friend, if, and I think he had also mixed up that he had a very big network that he thought mm. were all his friends but they weren't his friends. They were business acquaintances. And so they all disappeared. And so I was just trying to just support him as a a friend when um, stuff was was going on. I, I was not in the business. So I was not really involved with stuff going on there. I can imagine probably in the business that would have been like really challenging, you know, because if any business has a scandal, then that's a really tough thing to keep everybody focused and motivated and move through it like you've got lots of it's very big distraction for everybody and probably very distressing for everybody as well
1: yeah and and now i mean it hopefully ended with a positive note you know those charges were cleared and you're all on to different chapters now. But also you made a handsome margin, hopefully with the exit to Blackstone. How did that feel? Do you feel that as a co-founder from, you know, t- writing those $20 checks, right? And then getting it to the stage, do you feel that you've made
0: it? I did feel in some ways that I would made what I had as a goal. Like when we were starting the company, we didn't talk about, Hey, we want to sell the company for a billion dollars or or do this basically Mm. what i think and and i think that is one bit that's important with co-founders is you can have misalignment so if we had been misaligned on that maybe we got an offer to sell the company for a million dollars and if one of us had wanted to take it and one of us not that would have created a big conflict but i think we were always aligned that basically neither of us i don't think were that motivated about trying to get rich or make money what was motivating both of us i think was trying to build something big early right. on we were reading about google and larry and sergey we just thought that it's awesome they've built something really big and impactful and then talking with zayn the things that were motivating us was like going up to ring the bell to ipo you know we weren't yeah. like oh if i get a billion dollars then i want to like buy a private jet and buy a plane we didn't right. care about money and i think the same would go for Zane and I that maybe we came from somewhat slightly, um, similar backgrounds in terms of like not super, uh, affluent. And so I think mm-hmm. the main things that were cool for us, for Zane as well was like, Hey, I just want to get a little bit of money so that he could, he just wanted to get a little bit of money so he could pay off his parents' mortgage, you know? Yeah. And so you don't need a billion dollars to do that, you know? So we were never really that focused about becoming a billionaire or something. Like the only bits that we would talk about were, in comparison, much smaller um, sums of money. But we were always aligned about building something big. And then the company sold for uh, a big uh, amount. Mm. I don't know at what point we could have maybe comprehended that number. Um, Yeah. But I think that if we were still there, we would have wanted to keep building it and like IPO it. We weren't ever really trying to want to sell it. Got it. Um, but I think yeah. everyone happy with how stuff went. The company is still around today and doing good. And it was yeah. a big... Um, sale for um, everyone involved and then in, is cool also catching up with early people that joined and hearing about how yeah. the money for them has impacted their life so i think that on a whole pretty much everyone should be happy
1: Congratulations, Jack! So so proud of you, and uh, you know I've heard as a friend the ups and downs of it all. So now coming to the end of the session, um, you know you're talking about impact now in your second chapter, and I want to also congratulate you. You're speaking to me as a new father to your little baby. So this is the new chapter for you. What's next for Jack Smith?
0: I think that many successful entrepreneurs that I know they have um, a chip on their shoulder, so they kind of have mm. something to prove or. You know, like, yeah, if we're looking at like Donald Trump, like maybe he, people say that he was like living in the shadow of his dad, that his dad was very successful. And so his chip on his shoulder might be that he wants to show he's successful in his own right. And that's what's driving him. And I think many entrepreneurs have that, even if it's not as maybe obvious as the Trump case. And for me, I think it was partly about because I was starting business when I was young, like 15 or something, I always felt that people were not really like taking me that seriously or respecting me that much because, you know, I was just a high school kid. And so I kind of felt like, Hey, I think that actually I, I am more competent than, or I felt that I wasn't getting the kind of respect that I deserved. I mean, I didn't think that I'm amazing, but I just felt that, I should at least have some legitimacy. And that was kind of my chip on my shoulder. And what building that fungal got to the scale it did and then sold, I maybe didn't have that same chip in terms of driving me that, oh, I have to build a really massive business because I need to prove myself to somebody or whatever. And so when I just sat down and reevaluated, maybe a year or so ago, then I thought like, okay, what bit would be driving me now? And I kind of came to the conclusion that for me, it would be more um, driving for me, empowering to focus on where I could have like impact and Mm -hmm. impact in areas that perhaps other people are not seeing as a priority to focus on. And for me, that has kind of looked like a few different charitable um, nonprofit initiatives that I've um, started or help um, start. And so that has been pretty fulfilling that, you know, it's a different rush. Like there's one rush checking the company's bank balance and then seeing a million dollars hit the bank balance for the first time and then counting how many digits are in that number. And then it's a totally different um, rush now where one of the initial charities I'm involved with is helping people that are incarcerated in prison. And, you know, then someone writes a letter in about how it's changing their life, and one person had said like, oh, I've been in prison for like 20 years and then I've I, I've never seen anything like this program and I, I wish I'd seen it earlier. And so you're yeah. getting a different fulfillment entirely, but just as fulfilling really.
1: And final words for founders, what would your advice be to founders who are deep in the rough, in the thick of things and working
0: really hard? I, I guess it's just like, that not one bit is that not everybody actually maybe should be a founder. It is very glorified being a founder and they're the ones that movies get made about and all this kind of thing. It's also pretty awesome to be an amazing operator. And so I think people shouldn't necessarily just be driven towards entrepreneurship if that is what they're seeing glorified as being a celebrity. Mm. I think for me, a lot of entrepreneurship, it's really, really hard. So you're only doing it because that's the only thing you can see yourself doing. Like for me, I would be a really, really terrible employee. Like (laughs) no one would want to employ me because they would just fire me. And so I don't really have any other option other than to be an entrepreneur.
1: Well, Jack, you know, being in it for the right purpose, being aligned with your co-founder, so many nuggets and gems that you're dropping for us here today in Billion Dollar Moves. And I so appreciate your time. Thanks everyone. And see you again next week. Don't forget to subscribe, hit like, and share it with your friends. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.